Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Susanna Drake, who teaches at McAllister College. Here to talk about her new book, Slandering the Jew, Sexuality and Difference in Early Christian Texts, published in 2013 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Susanna, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you so much. I'm glad to have you. So maybe you can set the stage for us a little bit. Um, what period are we talking about when we talk about early Christianity? Uh, you know, sort of where is the action taking place? And who are some of the early church fathers whose names we should know? Great question. So the period that I cover in the book is largely from the first century of the Common Era, and that's the era when Jesus and Paul lived, both Jews, by the way. And it, the book goes up through about the turn, to the, the turn of the fifth century of the Common Era, so through the age of what we would begin to call often called the patristic period or the time of the church fathers. And so Paul is one of the main figures in the book, but then there are also some figures who might be lesser known to the general public, figures like um, Origen of Alexandria, a very important uh, third century biblical interpreter uh, and Christian theologian, and John Chrysostom, which many people would recognize that name. And he was a a bishop of Constantinople and also a priest in Antioch in the fourth century. So those are a couple a couple of the important names that uh, are tracked in the book, and and help you get a, a span of the of the time I'm thinking about too. Mm-hmm. So you you look at how um, the Jew you look at the Jewish construction the construction of Jews as sexual uh, perverts really in writings by. Greek church fathers from the fifth, first to fifth centuries. Um, what were some of the representations of Jewish sexuality in these early writings that you identified? So something that comes up fairly early in the Christian tradition, and this is after the time of Paul, who wrote in the mid-first century, but by the second and third centuries, we begin to get this trope, this idea that Jews are carnal. And that they're more bodily or attached to the flesh in a way that um, that opposes the way that Christians are attached to the spirit. So this carnal versus spiritual dichotomy begins to be mapped on to Jewish Christian difference, where Jews are the carnal ones, and guess what? Christians are the spiritual ones. And that begins to happen fairly early on in texts like the Epistle of Barnabas and the writings of Justin Martyr. And what I was interested in, one of the things I was interested in in this book, is showing how that trope developed alongside two um, two other developments in early Christianity. First, the interpretation of the Bible. So how do we, how do Christians um, begin to appropriate and interpret 
the Jews' Bible, or what they considered the Christians' Old Testament. And how do they appropriate that and and begin to say that this is our text too, and actually this text is about Christ? One of the ways they do that is to say, Christians are the proper interpreters of the Old Testament. We read it spiritually. The Jews, the other, um, and heretics, they read it literally or carnally. So that's one of the developments I was interested in. And the second is the development of Christian asceticism, this idea that um, that true Christians or Christians attempting to attain perfection um, would do so in a way to pursue bodily purity, often through renunciation of sex and family and wealth and this idea that aesthetic practices whereby one denied one's body would somehow get you closer to the spirit. So biblical interpretation and the development of Christian asceticism are two of the places um, that I looked for this, this um, horrible development of the trope of Jews as carnal. And by the time we get into the fourth and fifth centuries, this is a very common trope, and it's accompanied with other horrible stereotypes, um, including accusations of uh, being bestial or animal-like, uh, fleshly, inebriated, drunken, gluttons, um, and sexual deviants of all kinds. Pro- the women are prostitutes. The men are uh, alternatively too soft or hyper-masculinized or hyper- hypersexual sexualized. And so it's, um, and, and that type of stereotyping of the other, as I point out in the book, was not uh, new to the ancient world, nor is it foreign to our world today. Right. So how did they decide when to portray uh, Jewish men specifically uh, as either aggressively sexual or as effeminate and weak? Uh, isn't it sort of a contradiction to portray the same group as sexual predators, but also as effeminate? Um, yes. And the church fathers often had no problem with contradiction. They would use whatever stereotype was suiting them at the time. So um, when they wanted to, when the Christians, and this happened um, often uh, before Christianity became the religion of the state in the late 4th century, often Christians would portray themselves as the weak victim, the sheep, right, that were oppressed by either the Romans or oppressed by heretics in their midst or oppressed by powerful Jews. And when they were working with that type of discourse, the kind of oppressed Christian and the the Christian as victim and the victimizers, everybody else around them, who all all their opponents, um, they would they would sometimes um, call to mind this image of the the hypersexualized Jew in pursuit of pure Christian, uh, often women. So this, uh, Christians were feminized, their Jews were masculinized. It's, it's interesting as it shifts to the, um, as, as Christianity gains more power and as the Roman Empire itself is Christianized, we begin to see uh, less of that rhetoric and a little bit more of the rhetoric of, of Jews are um, deviant in other ways. Um, including, for example, John Chrysostom's first uh, sermon against the Jews, in which he says uh, Jewish men are malikos, soft or luxurious or effeminate. He kind of talks about them in that sphere. 
But in the same sermon, he's gonna, he goes to the other side and says they're, they're hypersexualized or they're gluttons or drunkards. And he, he brings whatever stereotype he wants to bear to try to prove to his congregation that Jews are people to stay away from. Why did early church fathers feel the need to, to do this? Um, didn't they share scripture and practices with, with Jews? Or was it precisely because they shared so much they felt they needed to uh, distinguish themselves? You know, I think you're right on that second point. Um, that it was that it was the very proximity and overlapping of their interests and their scriptures and their theologies and their practices. The fact that In all these centuries that we're talking about, you had people who were attending both church services and synagogue services. That um, that so that there were, I think, many people who we could term some kind of hybrid, um, both Jew and Christian, and that we see in the writings of the elite fathers that have been handed down to us an attempt to try to draw a borderline between the Jews and the Christians, between church and synagogue, between different practices, between different ways of interpreting the Bible. So I think in many cases that we can trace this, if you say this need or this impulse to um, to stereotype and to denigrate, um, I, I think that can often be traced to these very communities where there is proximity between the communities and overlapping interests. And it's in sometimes in those very, uh, in the, the close knit communities that you see some of the most virulent rhetoric. Yeah, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what hybridity is and why it's so scary. It seems like um, in a lot of instances where there's, where there's unclear boundaries, people get particularly scared. Yes. Yes. No, I, I agree with that. And, and hybridity this is, it's a complicated theoretical term, so I'm probably not going to do it justice here. Um, but I like to think of it as not just a kind of mixing or overlap, but a, a kind of the hybrid is a figure that points to the instability of the two poles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the the hybrid. I, for lack of a better term here, we could say Christian Jew or Christian Jewish Roman Hellenized person. Um, and, and that points to the very, um, the, the very instability of those categories as univocal or somehow bounded categories, Christian, Jew, Roman, Greek. Um, these were all things that uh, all categories of identity that in this period we're talking about, late antiquity, were contested and overlapping and um, often incommensurable. So, so I think hybridity in the in the book becomes a useful term for me to try to think about uh, the complicated nature of the landscape, especially in regard to identity. I want to come back to something you mentioned: the relationship between um, carnality and sort of literal interpretation of the Bible. Yes. Uh, it, seems like, it seems like the early church leaders are saying, you know, not only are Jews sexual, but because they're sexual, they misread the Bible. It, was, the, was the charge of sexual, you know, so the charge of sexuality such a potent one because it uh, allowed for this uh, textual differentiation? Yes, I think that's exactly right. They, uh, and here's 
the argument is very circular. Often in the place where this argument occurs, the the church leader will say something like, the Jews are so carnal because they don't understand their own scripture and they read it in a literal bodily way, um, according to the desires of the flesh, is what Episcopal, Epistle of Barnabas says. And then in the same breath, they'll say, uh, the Jews read their uh, their scripture incorrectly uh, because they are so carnal. So it's, it creates this kind of circle, circular argument um, that you can see that it, it doesn't hold much water. And um, but it's that it's that kind of correspondence of those two things where I really uh, I really see the um, the development of this trope of the carnal Jew seems to me to be in its beginning stages coupled with the accusation that Jews misunderstand their own scripture. And so in a way it's it's coupled with an exegetical claim on the part of Christians, a, a claim of the Bible as their own. So how successful uh, were the early church fathers in painting the Jews in this way? I mean, what were some of the ramifications? So this, this is something that I would love if, if I or other people after me could do more research on. In the book, I, I became very interested in, as I was writing, I became interested in the relationship of this rhetoric to acts of violence in what we might call the real world or material what are what are the material or social effects of this kind of rhetoric right so when john chrysostom preaches to his congregation and has all these horrible stereotypes of jews um what what happened as a result of that is there uh, what are the ways that we can trace anti-judaism in these other fields besides just the discursive and and there, I think things get a, a lot trickier. Um, so we, one thing, one avenue that I tried to somewhat open up in the book is to think about uh, legal um, legal moves once the empire was Christianized, or once the interests of the empire dovetailed with the interests of the church. Um, were there legal restrictions placed on Jews that might be seen as somewhat justified by the, the stereotypes of Jews coming from church leaders. Um, and then at, at actual instances of violence, uh, mob violence, for example, the burning of synagogues, forced conversions of Jews. Um, and definitely as you go into the medieval world, we have more evidence of these sorts of acts and you can See there in the literature as well the recurrent use of these tropes of Jews as carnal and sexualized, and I, I think there we have. I, I think it's an interesting project to trace that the links between violent speech or what we might now call hate speech and violent acts. It, it does seem like sexual deviance is uh, sort of in the eye of the beholder. Um, what, yes. do Jewish what do Jewish texts have to say about um, this kind of sexuality? So, since I'm not an expert on Jewish texts, um, I would point your listeners to um, the book by Daniel Boyarin called Carnal Israel, where he 
looks at Talmudic attitudes, so attitudes by the uh, on the part of the rabbis towards uh, marriage, sexuality, the body, and he actually begins that book in the introduction, quoting Augustine, who I whom I quote in in my book as well, um, on you know kind of behold carnal Israel. The reason the Jews are so carnal is because they don't understand their scripture. This kind of echo of what we've heard a lot so far. And and so Daniel Bayern quotes that and says this is a trope of, in, in this time period and then goes on to um, to read the rabbinic text and say in, in many ways the rabbinic readings of what became Jewish orthodoxy, rabbinic Judaism, in many ways these texts were displayed different and I think to simplify things, more positive um, valuations of the body or marriage or sexuality and that in comparison to late ancient Christian texts. And, and so I think there's important differences. There are important differences to trace there and in some continuities as well. And uh, so I would point listeners to the work, not only of Daniel Boyarn, but also Naomi Colton from is another good person to, um, to read, to think about Jewish attitudes towards marriage, sexuality, bodies, etc. Where is gender in all this? It seems like, um, you know, you start the book with a story and there's a couple of other instances where the uh, Christian writers are worried about their women. Uh, what's going on? Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> right. Um, the One of the arguments that I make in the book not only are the categories of Jew and Christian kind of created, and they're in, the, they're in the process of creating the categories Jew, Judaism, Christian, Christianity in this time period, they're also in the process of creating categories of male and female. And so I, I believe all these categories are in many ways socially made, socially constructed. And the... So there's there's a way to read the anti-Jewish material that I rehearse in the book as part and parcel of the construction of gender and sexuality in late antiquity, and I think vice versa. We can we can go to some of the writings on sexuality and asceticism, and and read there the construction of Christian identity and Jewish identity. So the the claims that kind of as you put it this kind of claim or identification on the part of the church fathers occasionally with the feminized side right when they want to portray themselves as victim they'll often portray Chrysostom does this um origin does it as well you portray the jews as the kind of aggressive male in pursuit of the pure christian female and um and this happens one of the one of my entry points into this book was uh, Christian interpretations of the Jewish apocryphal story of Susanna and the elders. And this story is kind of you have the pursuit of this Jewish matron Susanna, who is innocent and honest. Um, uh, the pursuit of her by these kind of evil, lascivious Jewish elders, and um, an accusation of which she is finally cleared by the wise judgment of Daniel. And 
in so in the appropriation of that story, there was often an identification of the church with the Jewish matron, interestingly enough, and the synagogue would then be identified with the Jewish elders who were licentious and depraved and dishonest in so many ways. So, so there I think you get this kind of interesting feminization of the church and masculinization of Judaism where it suits the purposes of the church fathers. And in other places, um, the church fathers will portray themselves as the strong men who have control of their wives and look at the poor Jews who the Jewish men don't have control of their wives and their wives are, you know, dancing barefoot in the streets and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the story of Suzanne and the elders is an interesting one in uh, chapter three, where um, we sort of see the categories of male and female being constructed. Um, one area where I thought that the um, the construction of the category of Jew was was particularly potent was in Justin Martyr's dialogue. Uh, maybe you could tell us about that from chapter one. Yeah, so Justin Martyr writes write one of his most famous pieces is, is this dialogue with Trifo, and it's it's a it's, a, it's not an actual recording of an interview that he had with the Jew Trifo. It's a highly rhetorical construction on Justin's part. Uh, this is in the second century, so very early on. His, and Justin Martyr, by the, last, by the way, is, um, it, the tradition remembers him as a martyr. It's not that his last name is, just, is Martyr. It's that the tradition remembers him as that since he was writing and potentially a part of a persecution of Christians in the second century. So he writes this um, this dialogue with Trifo where he talks about his upbringing as a pagan and his, um, his kind of flirtation with all sorts of philosophies, Stoic, Platonic. And then he is also interested in Judaism, but he finally, uh, Christianity finally wins the heart of Justin and he writes this dialogue with this rhetorical figure, probably invented, named Trifo. And, um, and in so doing, is basically justifying Christianity over and against Judaism. And so it's this early site for uh, the beginning stages of anti-Jewish Rhetoric in a, w- in a way that you could say this is stronger anti-Jewish rhetoric than that which we get in the New Testament, even though it repeats and develops some of the New Testament's claims. Yeah. Uh, chapter two looks at uh, origin of Alexandria. Uh, who was he and how did he continue and expand uh, the construction of Jews and sexuality that you talk about in chapter one? So origin is one of my favorite people to study. He is the third century theologian. He grows up in Alexandria, which is just this hotbed for intellectual exchange. You know, he's he um, he's schooled in languages. He does translation work. He teaches. He has a female patron who supports him. He writes homilies. He just he's very very productive, and he moves fairly early in his life. He moves to. Um, Caesarea Maritima in Palestine, and another community, another um, urban cosmopolitan community where you can imagine these overlapping communities of Jewish intellectuals, Christian intellectuals, pagan intellectuals, 
And and so he writes this very rich environment and and really is one of I mean, even though he's remembered as a heretic, he is one of the formers of Christian orthodoxy in many ways. And so he the reason he was so important to my work in this book, I believe, is because he helped to solidify, or I mean, it's not solid at this point, but he helped to bring along the tradition of Christian biblical exegesis. So uh, emphasizing spiritual Christian reading, what does that look like? Um, and he describes it in homilies and commentaries on biblical books, and he's left behind numer- numerous ones of these. He also has a book um, on first principles, which kind of lays out his method for biblical interpretation. And that's really one of the places you can begin to see this separation of literal reading from spiritual reading. And you know, in the 20th and 21st century, we hear a lot about um, the privileging of literal readings of the Bible. Well, that was not the case in the ancient world. They um, uh, figures like Origen often thought the literal reading was kind of the first stage, the kind of baby or toddler stage of reading, and that through the practice of becoming a more spiritual Christian one also was able to attain a stage of deeper spiritual understanding of the Bible. And for the interpretation of what he would call the Old Testament, um, this included the understanding of almost everything in the Old Testament as pointing to Christ, that, uh, that, uh, that there were types of Christ, like Isaac is a type of Christ, for example. And, um, and that, that the prophets were all prophesying about Christ. So Origen is one of the people who really um, lays out in a pretty uh, methodical way how to do that kind of biblical interpretation. And so along with that comes this trope of uh, the, the true Christians read in a spiritual way. And the best way to, one of the ways to understand that is to look at the Jews who read uh, in, in, a, in a lesser way than Christians do, according to Origen. That is, the Jews read in a, a carnal, literal way. They pay attention to what he calls the, the soma, the body of scripture. And they, Jews can't attain, he claims, the, the spirit of scripture, which for him is Christ. Mm-hmm. And then finally, in chapter four, you look at John Chrysostom's sermons against the Jews, uh, and there it seems like the the frequency and level of invective just skyrockets. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the things that that sort of stick with you from some of those sermons. Yeah, uh, I wish these things didn't stick with me because they're horrible images. Um, you're right; the the rhetoric really skyrockets with Chrysostom, and uh, and he's writing. I think these sermons are from 386 and 387. He's a priest in Antioch um, in the, at the time. And and he um, he writes against all sorts of heretics, but he he says he's interrupting a sermon against one heretical group to, um, to tackle a disease that has basically infected his church. And that disease is the disease of Judaism. 
And in and so in a series of eight sermons, he kind of lays out his case against Jews and so-called Judaizers. So for in Chrysostom's view, Judaizers are um, people who may identify themselves as Christian, but who are who come to church, but who are encouraging people in the church to also do Jewish things, Jewish practices, uh, attending Sabbath or celebrating the the Jewish holidays, um, observing kosher food laws. So he he calls these um, what we might also term hybrid figures, um, Judaizers. And he thinks that this is the kind of way, one of the ways through which the disease of Judaism is spreading in his church. I mean, he really paints it in um, in highly binarized, like uh, good good versus evil language. Something that also is not so unfamiliar to us today, you know, those of us who live in the U.S. in 2016. Um, and so, so I think that that we do with uh, with Chrysostom see some of the worst stereotypes that we have seen thus far in the Christian tradition. And this, you know, this, this kind of stereotyping continues, as I said, into the medieval world and into the modern one. And I think uh, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to expose how a stereotype such as that of the carnal Jew is made. So how does this type of hatred or hate speech, um, how does it start? What contributes to it? What's the context around which it uh, develops? And, and to just kind of expose it as a stereotype so that you can begin to undo it. And, and I think Chrysostom's sermons are a good place to go to see the um, development of some of the worst kinds of anti-Jewish stereotypes, stereotypes that are not unfamiliar um, to those who lived through 20th century. Mm. Well, Susanna, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and uh, what are you working on next? Oh, yeah. Well, parting thoughts, let me just think. Um, for those for those of you interested in in Jewish and Christian relations in the ancient world and in the late ancient world, um, there's a very nice online resource now. Let me just give it a plug. The Ancient Jew Review at ancientjewreview.com. And uh, that's one of my favorite sites now to go to to see forums, online forums and scholarly discussions of this type of material. It's started by um, some Columbia and Yale graduate students. And for my next project, for the project I'm currently hard at work on, um, uh, it's a project on veiling practices in early Christianity. So not only women's head coverings and thinking about um, debates about veiling before the rise of Islam, but also the use of veils and textiles and curtains in Christian ritual and in Christian art. Susanna, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Slandering the Jew, Sexuality and Difference in Early Christian Texts, published in 2013 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. The author is Susanna Drake. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.